Today's scripture reading comes from John 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Um, Good morning, morning, Charlie. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and I'm really excited to be sharing a message with you all from God's word uh, today. And I'm so excited, but I'm also proud, because despite my excitement, I used some self-control this morning, and I did not rob a store before coming here today. Now, if you're confused at why is my pastor is so proud about not robbing a store before he preaches, um, that's actually a really big step for me, personally. The last time I preached here in December, uh, I, uh, I, we were out of cups before Sunday service, and this is before Heidi had started as our ministry assistant, so we were really struggling getting stuff restocked. And so um, I had to go right before Sunday service to the local Walmart in my neighborhood and get some cups. And I, you know, walked right in, grabbed the cups out of the cups aisle, and just walked straight out of the church building, or out of the shopping center, and didn't realize until I came to church and looked over in my, like, front passenger seat and saw the cups sitting there. I'm like, I didn't pay for those. I just, like, stole those cups and, like, walked out, and now I'm going to go preach a sermon. Oh, my word. What am I doing? Um, But I want to update you guys on that and let you know I did go back to the store afterwards, and I paid for those cups. But I nearly forgot to do that as well. As I was leaving, you know, church that Sunday, um, I was, yeah, you know, a lot of things were on my mind, just talked to lots of people, I'd preached the whole sermon, the cups were far from my memory. And so I'm leaving and talking to someone, and she's asking me, and you know who you are, uh, oh, uh, you know, what are your plans the rest of the day? I'm like, oh, my, you know, my mother-in-law's in town, we're going to show around the city, we're going to Union Station, we got some barbecue, this and that. She's like, what about going to Walmart? I'm like, Walmart? Why do, why do I need to go to Walmart? She's like, for the cups. 
Oh, my word. Yeah, of course. Of course I'm going to Walmart. Yeah, totally, totally. And so I completely forgot, but went, went right there, right away, paid for the cups, so we're all good. So thanks for keeping me accountable. Thanks for laughing with me. Um, I'm excited to preach this morning, and uh, if you just please pray with me before, before we get started so that we can hear from God today and be ready to, to hear him speak to us. Dear Lord, I thank you for the gift of joy and laughter that although we, can take, we have to take you and we want to take you and your word and mission so seriously that we don't have to take ourselves with that same seriousness and we can laugh and, and, and poke fun at each other and ourselves. But God, I just thank you for this day that we get to hear um, your word. God, I pray that I speak it effectively and clearly today and that all of us would have our ears and eyes opened to hear from you, to see what you would point out to us and that we would be transformed as a result. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So to start off, I'd like to do a little bit of an experiment, and I'm going to need a little bit of participation from you guys. So I'm curious, thinking back to the beginning of the year, seven weeks ago, beginning of 2020, or beginning of 2022, oh my word, whoa, who here by show of hands uh, set a New Year's resolution this year? Raise your hands, raise a lot of, yep, all right, a good number of people set New Year's resolutions, all right, all right. Now, um, I myself set a New Year's resolution to read 30 books for fun this year. And actually, my wife, Sarah, and I are competing to see which one of us can read more books for fun. And uh, so we're doing that. But now, now I'm curious. Keep thinking. You keep your hands down. But keep thinking about the New Year's resolution you set for yourself. If you didn't set one this year, that's fine. Maybe think of the last time you set a New Year's resolution or the last time you set a goal for yourself. I'm curious. And I won't ask you to raise hands to protect our, you know, all of our shame. But uh, how are, how's it going with your last resolution? I'll tell you from my experience, uh, I read five books in the first three weeks, started off super strong, and I've read zero since. So Sarah is like kicking my butt so far, she's read three times as many as me, and it's, it's bad, it's bad in our household. But, I mean, that, that's, that's a natural thing, right? It's, it's hard to put new things into practice. We find, we, we have new hopes for a new year, but so often we can find that although it's a new year, right, it's the same you, it's the same person who couldn't do that in the previous year, is having the same struggle to live and make that lifestyle change in the new year. And I find that as I, as I struggle to change and struggle to put new things into my life, I find that it's easy to lack the motivation to change and to give up on change. And actually, this past week, I read um, that, you know, according to uh, an economist YouGov poll, only 23% of Americans made any resolutions this uh, this year. So yeah, so 80% are f- failed by the middle of January. I forgot to say that. So if you, if you failed, no worries. You're not alone. But so many people this year, about half as, norm- as many as normal, set only 23% made resolutions. And that makes sense, right? After a crazy year, last year and the year before, uh, pe- people are entering this new year, understandably, not wanting to set resolutions, not really motivated to do something different in their life, just trying to get by. And with New Year's resolutions, you know, of course, they're pretty small, minor things here and there, right? Like, I want to read more books, exercise better, diet a little better, maybe meet new people, budget a little better. They're little things here and there most of the time. And if we struggle so hard to put those small things into practice and to make those small incremental changes in our life, how much more difficult is it to actually make some big, substantial changes in our life? Right? We struggle to put into practice these hard, these little things and then we can be easy to then give up and think, can there be any big changes in my life? Right? Some of us might think, right, can I ever be done with this addiction that I'm struggling with? Can I ever change the way I respond to people and instead of responding with anger and frustration, respond with kindness instead? Can I stop having these self-destructive patterns of thinking that really trap me and paralyze me? 
if real lasting change, is real lasting change actually possible? And if it's not possible, why should I even try? Should I even try if I can't put, in, put these into practice and fail again and again? And in our passage today, as we continue our series going through the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to see Jesus encounter someone who, unlike us, he's not looking to change his life. He's not looking to set a New Year's resolution. He's really comfortable where he is. But Jesus tells him that every single person, including him, a very well-respected religious leader, must have a completely fresh new start. They must be born again, be completely transformed in order to experience life the way God designed it, in order to live according to God's intentions. That's not just like a marginal improvement here or there. That's actually like a complete and total change in our lives that Jesus is saying. We must be born again to experience that. So Jesus says that real lasting change, it's actually possible and it's necessary. It has to happen. Otherwise, you have no hope of living the way God created you to live. And it is possible, though just not in the way we might typically think. Today, that's what we're going to look at. First, um, why is this new birth just talked about so necessary? And then we're going to look at how is this new birth even possible? So first, why is the new birth necessary? Now, it's interesting to consider who this first person that we have recorded ever to be told they need to be born again. And this person is actually really different than what our contemporary, broader culture thinks a born-again person is. So Tim Mackey of the Bible Project did this interesting uh, study where he looked at his local paper in Portland, Oregon, and he kind of just did a quick search on there and and found every article that mentioned um, the term born again to kind of see how does my city in Portland think about what, what makes people born again. Now, I re- he, and he found you know, two ways that, that, that the newspaper talked about born-again people, primarily. I repeated that same experiment here with the Kansas City Star. I, I went online and searched born-again on their archives and found strikingly similar results to what Tim Mackey found. So you have found these two things. It's first, being born-again either means, first, that you are someone who's kind of like a crazy rock star partier, public persona kind of type, that all of a sudden you hit some wall in your life of depression or an addiction that you can't get over on your own. And so because of that failure, you turn to religion, but not just any religion. You get really like serious, like fundamentalist, like really go, go hard in, in religion as a crutch to kind of help get you through your life. That's like how most people talked about it first, primarily. Second, being born again, according to a lot of newspapers today, means that you are a white conservative Christian and you, have, you, you advocate for kind of traditional um, Christian values politically, uh, typically you know, supporting Republican Party uh, candidates, and you, yeah, you're, you're advocating around issues most of the time around like abortion or gay marriage or religious liberty or other things like that. And that's what it means to be born again. But it's interesting, right? In, in our passage, we make Nicodemus the first person ever told of his need to be born again. He's not a rock star, you know, who, who needs religion as a crutch. He's a religious leader who ha- says he has no need of anything and is, and is perfectly satisfied the way he's living. And actually he is a conservative religious leader from the majority culture who has political influence and is using that influence to advocate for traditional social values. So if he was alive today, I think the Kansas City Star, if they ran an article on Nicodemus today, they would identify him as a born-again Christian according to our culture's definition. But even though the Casey Star would say that Nicodemus is born again. Jesus doesn't. And Jesus tells him that being born again is something you haven't experienced yet. That what it means to have a new birth is something you're still looking for. 
So who is this Nicodemus? He's not what our culture thinks born again is, but who does the text introduce him as? So first, he's a Pharisee. Now, when you hear that word Pharisee in our culture, that's like a real dirty word. Like to call someone a Pharisee, like no one wants to be called a Pharisee. A lot of negative stereotypes and, and connotations to that. But in the first century, Pharisees were seen as like the height of religious and moral ideals. Like people held them up and really respected and admired Pharisees. They were a group that taught in Israel that people needed to follow God's laws really strictly and closely in a certain interpretation of them. And if they did that, there would be national renewal where the, the nation would, would, would be set free from uh, the oppression by the Romans if people turned to God and followed him faithfully. And so they, they taught really strict, meticulous observance to the law in very small areas. Um, and Jesus is not impressed by the Pharisees at all. They're one of his most common opponents throughout his ministry. And he tells them, like, I'm not impressed that you tithe, that you give 10% of all your herbs and spices because although you do all these little things, you neglect to do the more important, the more serious, the weightier matters of the law. You don't become the kind of people that pursue righteousness, that pursue justice, that pursue mercy. You, you, you focus on the details and you miss the big picture. So not only is nicknamed a Pharisee, who's well-respected, he's also a ruler of the Jews. He's someone with a lot of political influence and power. He's also called the teacher of Israel. This is likely an official title of a recognized teacher in the Pharisaic hierarchy, where he would probably have the entire Old Testament and many other theological books and commentaries memorized. This is a really smart guy, probably would be the smartest person in the room if he was here today. But he comes to Jesus at night for a secret meeting. And we don't know, we aren't told why he comes to Jesus. Perhaps, right, he's a genuine seeker. He's coming out trying to understand Jesus better. Or perhaps, right, he's a politician. He's coming to Jesus, the secret backdoor meeting, trying to see if he can work a deal with him and trying to maybe build some kind of coalition with him to advance his own political goals. Or in my opinion, I think it's probably some combination of those two mixed together. But whatever the case, he comes to Jesus at the, for the secret meeting at night and he starts off by complimenting Jesus. We see that you're a teacher from God because no one can do the miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. Right, so we, I can see him starting off, right, after Jesus has just had this very public um, controversy with the Pharisees, where, remember last week, Jesus cleanses the temple, declares it to be his father's house, and the Pharisees confront him. And they're like, who gives you the authority to do these things? So he has this big controversy with the Pharisees. That night, one of the Pharisees comes to him and is like, hey, Jesus, we know some of the Pharisees. We know that you're from God. Right? We, 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 we trust, we, we see these miracles you're doing. We want to work together. Um, I'm complimenting you, saying I think you're from God and you're a teacher from God. Let's see if we can work together. Maybe you can compliment me. We can go back and forth. We can work together, come to some mutual beneficial agreement and see if we can work together to make Israel better, right? That's what Nicodemus is coming to Jesus for. But instead, Jesus is having none of that. He's not interested in joining Nicodemus's political conversation. Instead, Jesus responds and takes the conversation down a completely different direction and even like offends Nicodemus as well. He responds to Nicodemus saying, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. As if he's saying, like, Nicodemus, like, you see all these miracles I'm doing, and you, you think you have me all figured out. Actually, you haven't got a clue. You don't see anything. Unless someone's born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, the way God is remaking the world and reestablishing his order according to his original intentions, unless you are born again. Now, you may see a footnote in your Bible next to that word again, um, and you, you might see that in your, in, your, in your Bible. If you look down to the bottom of the page, um, it, it might say um, this word could also mean from above. People, people seeing that in there? And so that's because the Greek word used here that John is using as he writes the Gospel of John, that word, depending on the context, could mean 
again or from above, depending on the context. And it seems to me that Jesus is intentionally being ambiguous about his, his meaning, if it's again or from above, because he's trying to do a bit of a wordplay on there. He's talking about people needing a fresh start uh, to be born again, but also people needing to be born from a new source that he'll talk about later, being born from above, being born from God or from heaven. And so he, he offends Nicodemus by saying that Nicodemus, this person his culture would hold up and value and respect, you need to have a fresh start. You need to be born again with a new source. And so the Nicodemus responds by taking Jesus super, super literally, right? Now, it can be easy when you read Nicodemus saying, uh, can a man really be born when he is old? Can he enter in his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's easy to take that and like think, Nicodemus, how dumb can you be? Like, do you really think Jesus is speaking like literally? But actually, can I defend my, my man Nick for a second here? This guy is wicked smart. He has the entire Old Testament memorized. Anyone here have the entire Old Testament memorized? Anybody? No? No? Oh, didn't think so. This guy is really smart. He knows his stuff. He knows what Jesus is saying. He knows Jesus has just offended him, you know, and and said, no, you think you see something, Nicodemus? You don't see anything, because unless you're born again, have a fresh start, you have no idea what's going on here. And so Nicodemus responds, right, obviously being a little hurt, right, because he's someone who if anyone doesn't need a fresh start, it's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, well-respected religious leader and teacher. He has his life figured out. He doesn't need a fresh start. And also, what's so wrong with his first birth? He was born an Israelite, a part of God's chosen people that God chose to reveal himself to the world. Why would he need to be born again as an Israelite who's following God's laws faithfully? And so, right, he responds to Jesus sarcastically, taking his, his, his metaphor to the logical extreme, trying to poke fun at Jesus and say, you can't be serious. Like, this makes no sense, what you're saying. But Jesus responds and, and, and restates the need for people to be truly transformed. As he's talking to Nicodemus, this person, his society would say, has reached the heights of moral and religious excellence. Jesus tells him, again, in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus restates his original claim, but he changes a few words and, and makes it more intensifies. So in, in, instead of just merely seeing the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's not just perceiving or understanding, it's now stepping into and participating in the kingdom of God, which is God's uh, restored setup of how the world was made to be, experiencing and living life the way God originally intended and created life to be, be lived. And he also talks about being born again as being born of water and spirit. Now, there's a lot of like debate and back and forth with biblical scholars and commentaries about what this really means, water and spirit. I won't bore you with all that information. In my opinion, I think the best, most compelling way to read that phrase, water and spirit, comes from understanding a little bit of the book of Ezekiel. And it seems likely to me Jesus is, is referencing a certain passage in Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, and be on the screen. And Jesus is referencing this passage in the Old Testament to an Old Testament scholar trying to speak his language. So Ezekiel 20, uh, 25, 27, it's God talking to the people of Israel, telling them of their need of a fr- for a fresh start uh, to obey his, his laws, and he says it like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this renewal of a person that comes about through the new birth, this fresh start people need to have, Jesus talks about it in two images, water and spirit. Water as like 
the image of being washed with, from all your impurities. And then spirit in the image of, of receiving a new animating life force inside you that fills you and enables and empowers you to live life the way God intended, to follow his laws, not for the purpose of just keeping rules for rules' sake, but for being the kind of person that God created all of us to be and living the way he intended. And so why is this new birth so necessary, even for someone like Nicodemus? It's because without it, change isn't possible. You can't live into the way God created us to be without it. So Jesus continues to explain this need for a new birth uh, from a new source when he says in verse 6 that everything born of flesh is flesh, everything born of spirit is spirit. This is a common observance in the natural world, right? Like gives birth to like. Dogs give birth to dogs, cats give birth to cats, and also broken, selfish, sinful human beings will give birth to other broken, selfish, sinful human beings. It's just the way it is. And we shouldn't be surprised that that's how life works. Jesus says we shouldn't marvel at it. Now, I just want to make sure that we understand what Jesus means by flesh, though. I think it's easy to hear Jesus say flesh and spirit and think he means he's talking about our physical bodies, that there's something wrong with our bodies, being bodies, and like our physical bodies are actually the problem. But that wouldn't make sense because God created physical bodies. Jesus has a physical body, a fleshly physical body, and Jesus is actually raised from the dead into a physical body. So physical bodies aren't the problem. It's the way that sin has corrupted physical bodies and prevented physical bodies from being experienced and lived out and used for the way that God originally created them for. So Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. This shouldn't surprise us. Sinful human beings make more sinful human beings. And we shouldn't marvel. We're surprised at this. So just think, um, let's say at your house, you have an apple tree in your backyard and you really like the apples for a while, but after a while, you get kind of bored of apples, and you're like, you know what? Instead of apples, I'd have some oranges instead. So you go out to your backyard, and you start to prune that apple tree a little more. You, like, water it with some extra water. You, like, get some fertilizer from Lowe's or Home Depot and kind of put it in the soil around, thinking whatever, you know, that's going to help maybe change the fruit from apples to oranges. Or even, you know, you think, hey, in Florida, there's lots and lots of sunlight. So I need to make sure this tree gets lots of sunlight, so you're changing the environment to make sure it gets tons of sunlight, direct light from the sun. Still no oranges. It's like, all right, I got to paint these apples orange. Maybe I'll take some oranges and paste them on the apple tree. I mean, you can try anything you want. Lots more things you can try. No matter what you do, that apple tree is still going to produce apples. It's not going to produce oranges because flesh gives birth to flesh. The only way that broken human beings, sinful human beings, can, can have real lasting change and become the kind of people that God created us to be, it needs to come from his intervention. There's nothing we can do on our own power to change that. And you know, some of us are actually really blessed and gifted by God with, with really strong willpower and self-control. And so it's easy for some people, right, to deceive ourselves and think like, no, I can make really big changes because I've changed myself here or there. But actually, I think you'll find at the end of the day, no matter what change you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter what accountability structure you have, what system you, you change in your life, at the end of the day, flesh gives birth to flesh. You'll find yourself struggling with some area of life you just can't change. And because at the end of the day, there's no man-made cure for being human. Flesh gives birth to flesh. So the only hope that we, as God's people, have of, of becoming the kind of people God created us to be is by having a fresh start, being born again from above with a, with a new source and participate in God's kingdom because of that transformation. So every single person, everyone, needs the new birth 
to live the way God intended. And God, right, he's the creator of life. He knows the way life should be lived because he made it. And it's his, get, his, his creation, not ours. So the only way we can experience life the right way is to live it the way God intended. But that's impossible unless we experience an intervention by God. No matter if you're a super religious person and you, follow, you think you're following God really well, like the Pharisees were, or you're someone who's just trying out church or Jesus for the first time and you don't like religion at all, whether you have your life all put together or you don't know how you're going to make it to the end of the day, every single person needs to experience the new birth to live the way God intended. But now that we've talked about that, let's just move on to how is this new birth even possible? If we even would concede that it's necessary, how is it possible? And that's what Nicodemus asks, asks Jesus in verse 9. He responds says, how can this be? How is it possible for people to experience this kind of new birth you talk about? I mean, let's concede, Jesus, that you're right, that everyone needs to experience a new birth, even though I don't think me, a Pharisee, would need to. But let's concede everyone needs to. How would that even happen? I mean, us Pharisees, we follow God's laws really closely, and although we're not perfect, there's the sacrificial system we can do and like atone for our sins. So we're good. We're really stable with God. But there's other people, Jesus, like Ferris, uh, not Ferris, that tax collectors, prostitutes, Roman soldiers, other Gentile idol worshipers. There's no hope for them, Jesus, to become new people who follow God's law. Like, give me a break. How is that even possible? Now, if you've been around church a while, I, I think you probably know the right answer and you know what I'm going to say towards the end of this. But would you sit with me here for just a moment? Is Nicodemus right? Because I can tell you, I have a lot of personal life experience that would validate what Nicodemus is saying. That for some people in certain areas, change is just not possible. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only person here who's said the most terrible thing to someone I love the most and just been astounded by how I could say something so hurtful and harmful to that person. I'm sure a lot of us have had times where we've, we've been struggling with an addictive behavior that we know isn't right for us, that we don't want to do. But even though we experience the consequences of that, we're like, I'm not going to do that again. The next day, we're back, right back in it. Or, or being caught in certain paths of thinking or ways of acting with people, and we just can't seem for whatever reason to change that. Is it really possible to have a fresh start and to be born again? So Jesus, he talks about this new birth and the change it brings, and he, he addresses Nicodemus' concern and he uses this, this imagery of wind to talk about how, how the change the new birth brings about. And he says in verse 7 already, Nicodemus, he has this image of wind, which is appropriate because the Hebrew and Greek word for wind is actually the same as that word for, um, for spirit and breath. It's all the same word. So it's a nice word play Jesus does. In verse 7, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, I'm going to say something that sounds so obvious, and I probably shouldn't even say it, because like, it's Captain Obvious, Caleb, why are you saying this? But did you guys know weather is so unpredictable? Like, did you, did you guys know that? Like, that's, that's just crazy. I mean, we of all people in the Midwest should know weather is unpredictable. Like, even in our day, where we have 10-day forecasts and computer models that project high and low pressure currents, we still, like, weatherman says one thing, something else happens, and the weatherman still has a job, right? Or even just this past week, right? We had four seasons in just two days. Like, we have anyone should know like, weather is crazy. And Jesus is saying that. Like, wind, you don't know perfectly. You can't understand how it happens, but you can't deny the results. When a windstorm comes through and knocks a tree down, you can't deny that because you see that happen. When a snowstorm comes through Kansas City and shuts us down for two days, we can't deny that even though we don't understand why. In the same way, Jesus is saying that although we might not know the specific ways in which a new birth comes about, and it can be hard to exactly describe exactly how that happens in detail, 
You can't deny the results. That a new birth does happen, and people are able to change. Now, although Jesus, or Jesus concedes, that's hard to understand, but now he moves on to talk about how he is someone who's uniquely able to communicate um, truth in this matter, because he knows it from his first-hand experience. We can trust Jesus to tell truth about the new birth. In verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So this is a basic truth in this life that people should be able to speak honestly and accurately about their own experience, right? We'd all agree with that. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No, this is, di- this is deeper than just a misunderstanding. It's, it's not just Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but he disbelieves. He doesn't trust that Jesus is communicating things accurately and truthfully. But Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says that he is uniquely able to speak truth about the new birth and explain how it's possible because he knows from his firsthand experience the source. He is God incarnate. He has come from heaven. He knows the source from his own experience, and he actually is the source of our new birth. So after Jesus has, so, so he believe, he's saying, you should trust me, Nicodemus. So Jesus says, hey, it's difficult to understand. That's all right. You can see the effects. I'm uniquely able to tell you the truth, so you should listen to me. Now, finally, Jesus gives the punchline and the reason and, and how a new birth is actually possible. He says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you might not get this reference to the serpent in the wilderness that, that Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus does, right? This guy's the whole Old Testament memorized. He knows what Jesus is talking about. Because in the book of Numbers, which actually, as a side note, I just got to say, we've picked the worst name in the English language for that, that book, book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. I mean, a lot of people don't like math in our culture. No offense to any middle school math teachers here. But, uh, we, we, you know, I, I like math. But most people don't. And so book of Numbers, who wants to read that? But for our English Bible, Old Testament, if you didn't know, our Old Testament names, we chose the Greek Old Testament translation names to, to name those instead of the Hebrew Bible for whatever reason. And so the fourth book of the Bible in the Hebrew Bible, same book, but it's called In the Wilderness. Ooh. Right? 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 Or Wilderness Wanderings is, is another way to kind of put it. I would love to go home and read the book of Wilderness Wanderings. I don't know about you. Book of Numbers, not so much. But book of Wilderness Wanderings, right? 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 So anyways, Jesus references the book of Wilderness Wanderings. Chapter 21, the people of Israel are, you know, in, in the wilderness, and they're wandering, right? And they're waiting to enter the promised land. Um, and while they're there, they start grumbling and complaining to God and saying, hey, we need to go back to slavery in Egypt. Like, slavery in Egypt was actually better than being in the wilderness. And God's like, all right, well, if you don't want me to save you and deliver you, I'm just going to let you experience what life without me is like. So I'm going to allow these venomous snakes in judgment to come into the camp. They'll start biting people, and you're going to get sick and die. So that's what's happening. Moses cries out to God, asking him to to save the people of Israel. And God says, yeah, I'll do that. But here's how it's going to happen. Moses um, creates a bronze sculpture of a serpent, put it on a pole, hold that up in the middle of the Israelite camp. And if anyone was bit by a snake, no matter if they're super, like, rich or poor Israelite, or no matter if they were the ones who were complaining the most or complained a little, no matter what, if anyone was bit biased by the snake, the cure is the same. You just need to look at this bronze serpent, look and trust in the provision that God has provided for you that you can't provide on your own. Trust in it. 
and boom, you'll be healed. You'll be healed of your sickness. So they had to just look and trust God's provision to be saved from their illness. And then also what they had to look at, like the image they were forced to see and gaze at to be saved was an image that reminded them of their affliction and sickness. Do you see that? They had to look at the image of a snake to remind them of the snake that just bit them. And so by the, the way deliverance came to them was through something that was purposely designed to remind them of the affliction that they had and the suffering that they had. So Jesus then turns and says, in just the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man, this is him talking about himself, be lifted up. Now throughout the Gospel of John, this term, be lifted up, it's always used to describe and to talk about Jesus' crucifixion. It's where Jesus is, is nailed to two wooden beams, and then he's hoisted into the air in a public location, lifted up for all to see, for people to walk by and turn the city to ridicule him and to mock him, and for people to see him up there naked, uh, bleeding out, nailed to, nailed to two wooden beams, barely being able to breathe, suffocating, dying an excruciating death at the hands of the Roman oppressors. And he's saying that if people look to him on the cross, trust the provision that God has provided through that, they can have eternal life. And that's not just like going to heaven when we die. That's another way of talking about the new birth. It's experiencing an eternal quality of life even now, experiencing life the way God meant it to be right now and living into that fully into the future. We have to look on that and trust, but also the image that Jesus is calling people to look onto, the Son of Man lifted up. It's not an easy image. It's not a comfortable thing to look at. It's actually an image that reminds us of our own affliction, of our own sickness. Yet we see that God had to come as the Messiah and die on the cross to save us. It makes my sin look like a lot bigger problem than I typically think it is. And also, we have to look on, on Jesus dying at the hands of Roman oppression. We see the Son of God taking on himself some of the worst sin and most evil things in the world that people do of, of killing and oppressing and brutalizing one another. And he takes it on himself. And we have to recognize and see that in him and see that in ourselves when we look at him on the cross. And that's the only way a new birth is possible that we so desperately need. This new birth is only possible through Jesus' death. And that might seem stark to you, right? Talk about birth. At the same time, we're talking about death. They feel really divorced and disconnected in our culture. And especially me, if you're like me, um, in my mind, typically, I don't think of physical birth. Uh, I think of physical birth typically as a pretty clean sanitary image, right? So I've never experienced or seen a real, a real childbirth. Uh, my only birth, if you're like me, uh, experience of that comes from TV and movies, right? Where, you know, a woman is pregnant, walks in the hospital, a water breaks. Two or three pushes later, out comes this beautiful, spotless, clean baby, right? Oh, wow, just looks so cute, so clean, so easy, so nick, so, so, so sweet and instantaneous. Now, I, I don't know this because I've never experienced it, but so I hear from my mother and other, other women, that's not what childbirth is actually like. So if, if that's what you think, you know, make sure you ask you know, a woman here who's given birth or maybe your own mother later today to, to tell you about what childbirth is actually like. But Jesus is using this image of childbirth to talk about the fresh start and personal transformation we all need in a day and age, in a culture in which most people's initial first experience of childbirth wasn't from TV, it's because it was before TV, was from likely experiencing a, a, a woman in their family, their mother or a sister or someone in their family member, give birth in their household. This is an age before hospitals, before modern medicine, before epidurals, in a day and age when actually a lot of women, even more than today, actually lost their lives 
during childbirth. And that's the image Jesus chooses to use. Tim Keller puts it in a really great way when he says this, every child born into the world is being born through the pain and suffering of someone else, the mother, at the risk of her life, and in many cases, especially in Jesus' day, at the cost of her life. So th- those in Jesus' time, when he says a new birth, that's why Nicodemus reacts so, so terribly to it. Right? They know that's a really stark, dirty, messy, painful, bloody image that they've experienced, and that's, I don't want to go through that again. Right? And they know that so much better than us, that, that, that the birth of one person, that one person's g- gift of life comes through the suffering and sacrifice of someone else's. And often, us today, with, with TV and, and media, we don't think in that way. And so, you know, I thought um, last week, I said, you know, it'd be really cool is if I showed an, a picture or actually a video of a live childbirth no, for, 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 us to watch, no. for us to watch today. No. And I was really considering it, you know, I was try, trying to do some research. And then I was like, you know, I remembered that I'd, I'd really like to still be your pastor next week. Thank you. <laughs> so, and so I decided against it. You're welcome, Charlie, and everyone else as well. So I decided against that. But something, a story that I, I remembered that actually, yeah, taught this, this truth again, that, that childbirth often comes through the suffering of someone else, was the story of my, my grandmother and, and her birth. So when I was in college, I had to interview someone over the age of 70 to tell me their life story, and I write a paper about it for a class I was in. So I picked my grandma, and I interviewed her about her life, and she told me her life story. And I tell you what, the thing she told me, I had no idea. Like, I had known her for 23 years and, like, lived with her for a little while and thought I knew my grandma really well. But she told me her life story, and I was like, oh, my gosh, Grandma, like, I had no idea that these things you went through in your life. And especially, like, the first, the first thing, she told me about her, her birth experience. So my great-grandmother, Viola Gibson, in 1940, was living in the backwoods of Arkansas, and she was 40 years old, she was not married, and she became pregnant. And in that culture, and especially in that really rural farming community, there's so much communal shame around being pregnant out of wedlock without being married. And also she was 40 and kind of older, and especially then there's a lot of complications with having your first childbirth that late typically, especially then. And so her physician told her, like, Viola, you should really, you should really consider, and I'm actually strongly encouraging you to terminate this pregnancy. Like, how are you going to make ends meet and, and deal with the shame that comes with that? And also, like, it's going to be really medically complicated to deliver this baby. You should really terminate her. My great-grandma Vi made a very brave and courageous decision, and she decided to go ahead with a birth to have my grandmother, and it wasn't an easy childbirth. There were some complications during the delivery that caused my grandmother to have some scars on her head that um, was really a a painful, uh, hard labor and delivery. And even after she was born, they had to live with that communal shame of being pregnant when you're unmarried and you're 40 in the backwoods of Arkansas. And they went and had to go live with my grandparents, with their grandparents, and grow and raise, and she had to be ra- she had to raise her child living back home with her parents. So that's a picture of my great-grandma Vi, my grandmother. And despite that suffering and that pain they went through earlier on in life and in many other ways too, that choice and that suffering brought my grandmother into the world. It gave her the gift of life. And she and myself and my mother are super grateful. Like our life is only possible because my great-grandma Vi made that decision to go through with that childbirth. And also, even despite that shame and pain in that community, like her parents really rallied around my great-grandma Vi. And they like supported her so well and cared for her and helped her raise my grandmother and loved her so well. And so her, her choice to go through that pain and suffering on the other side 
brought some, a lot of goodness and gift of life. And so I wonder if even Jesus, as he talks about the new birth and he has that image in his mind of childbirth, I have to think somewhere in the back of his brain is his own experience of childbirth, of being born to a mother out of wedlock and being born um, in, in a situation where there's a lot of communal shame that he had to carry as a child and that his life, his physical life, was only possible through the sacrifice that his mother Mary made for him. And that's why I think he picks this image, new birth, to talk about what it's like for us to become new people, that it's only possible through Jesus' death and resurrection, only through his suffering can we experience new life on the other side. And also, I think when we typically think, like me, like these, guys, these uh, young guys up here who think about childbirth as a very instantaneous image, it can be easy to think about our own uh, new births and rebirth stories and, and expect them to be really quick, easy, and instantaneous, right? And, and, and certainly, when, when people choose to follow Jesus, many you know, miraculous things can happen, and people can experience really drastic change in their life initially. And because when you believe in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, and you start to become a new person. But I think if any of us have been following Jesus for a while, we know that over time, it's hard. It's hard to live the way God created us to live. It's hard to make that change. And I think knowing that childbirth is also an image of pain, of, 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 of slow labor. I mean, my own mother was in labor for me for something like 15 or 20 hours. Like, I have to thank her every, every Mother's Day really profusely. I was really crazy. But childbirth itself is a slow, messy image. It's appropriate for our own rebirths to be similar, similar kind of stories. And you know what also, like, strikes me as so crazy is that human beings, human, human babies, take so long to mature. As compared to other animals, like antelopes, for example. Like an antelope... Three minutes, two or three minutes after being born, it can run. Because on the savannah, you have to run from a lion, like really quickly. After, after, after a gazelle is born, it can run from a lion for its life. Human babies, on the other hand, it's a whole year, and you're still barely walking. Another couple years, and you're barely talking. Three, three, to, three four, five years to learn how to use the toilet, maybe that's a little long. I think I, I was really late. I think I was really late. It took me a long time to learn how to use the toilet. Maybe more, more so than other people. But also another 25 years or longer to have your brain fully developed. Like human babies, human beings take a long time, even after birth, to fully mature. And so it's appropriate. And it's natural for us as Christians, after we've been reborn, that's going to take us some time. It's going to take us actually our entire life for God to teach us and, and through his spirit shape us into the people he created us to be and reach full maturity. And that's okay. And that's natural. But we shouldn't be surprised, right, that it takes time. And just because it takes extra time, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not possible. So in response to this truth that our new birth is only possible through Jesus' death, we need to look to Jesus on the cross as our Savior. Right? We need to recognize our idea. That's what Jesus says. Everyone who looks on him and believes will have eternal life. And so that means as looking to that image, that painful image on the cross, we recognize our need because we see that Messiah had to die for us to be saved. And no matter if you've never trusted Jesus and you've never followed him or you've been following him faithfully your entire life, no matter, no, matter, no matter where you're on that spectrum of human spirituality, the solution's the same. We never outgrow our need for Jesus as our savior. We never outgrow our need or outgrow the fact that at one time we needed a new birth and need to continue to lean into that new birth to live the way God created us to live. And so also we respond to that in gratitude. Right? There's nothing any person here did to cause themselves to be born, right? When you are born, that is purely what your, your mother does that and it's a gift that she, and, and the pain and suffering she does that brings you into the world. 
And there's nothing you can do later as a grown-up to pay your mother back for giving birth to you, right? The only thing you can do is respond in gratitude and be grateful for her for going through that pain and suffering and then bringing you out on the other side. And so that's, that's how we respond to Jesus. We, we can't do anything to cause us to be born again. It's something he does to us. But we can respond in gratitude and appreciation and joy for the sacrifice he made for us. And also Jesus calls us as his followers to believe in him. And we can typically think that belief just means to intellectually like agree that something is true. But actually, I think a helpful way to think about belief is acting as though something is true. And so to believe in Jesus means to act as though he is true, that what he said is actually true, that, that what, would it, what would it look like in our lives if we acted as though what Jesus said about being born again is actually true and possible? Now, if you're like me and you have a car that you use every day and you trust that car to get you to work, it wouldn't be enough if you just said, hey, I believe in my car to get me to work, but you never hopped in and drove there, right? You wouldn't really be believing your car can get you to work. It doesn't matter if you understand everything about mechanics, if you can look up on Google Maps and see how you would get from your house to work, unless you step in your car, turn the ignition, and drive to work, you don't actually believe that car can get you to work. In the same way, there are things that we as Christians, if we believe that Jesus has, has, has opened up a possibility for us to experience a new birth through his actions on our own, and we believe that a new birth is possible through his death, and that we've begun to experience it, and we'll fully experience it in the future, and we're on a process, there's things that are going to be different in how we live. That's going to affect the decisions we make. So what would be different in your life today if you acted, even in small ways, as though Jesus, Jesus was right and Jesus is true when he said a new birth is possible? You know, I think you would not give up on change. Even if it takes more than seven weeks in a new year to put into practice, I think you would pray to God with boldness, knowing that his answer is eventually going to be yes. It might not be in your timing, but he will make you into the mature person he created you to be this, in this life or the next. I think you would step into um, Christian community and you would wrap yourself around or surround yourself with other believers to pour into you and encourage you and motivate you for accountability because you know that's who you really are. I think you would step into your workplace tomorrow morning with confidence, with a new confidence, knowing that you've been have this new identity and a fresh start that God's given you and putting his Holy Spirit inside you. And this might be especially scary for some of us, but I think you would be honest with God and with other people when you fall short. And you'd confess to others in thoughtful and appropriate ways to people who are trustworthy, of course. But you would feel freedom to tell other people when you've fallen short. Because you know that like, you've been born again and God has, has created you to be someone different. And when you act in ways that are contrary to that, that's, that's you acting differently than the way you're supposed to be. You're acting out of your identity and out of who God has made you to be. And so you should be able to, to say, hey, like, I did this thing over here and like, that's not who I want to be. That's not who God made me to be. And you can say that without shame to people who love you and trust, and you can trust you. And you can say those things and let that, that, that sin you did lose its power because it's not hiding inside you in, your, in the darkness anymore. It loses power when you bring it to the light. That's why this practice of confession is so important. That's actually how we're going to end the message today with a time of confession. And so... And we're going to do that together. We're going to read this corporate prayer of confession that's going to be on the screen. Uh, it's going to give us some good language around confessing our sins. And we're going to read that together, and then I'm going to pause and give all of us a moment of silence for us to pray quietly in our hearts to God and tell him and, 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 and name the things that can be brought to mind today in the message or even during this prayer and confess those to him and acknowledge them and let them lose their power by bringing them to the surface. And then afterwards, I'm going to read these words of assurance that are going to remind us that our forgiveness, that our new birth, our new standing with God 
is not the result of any actions that we could do. It was actually an entirely a gift given to us by him. And that we only step into that new birth because of God's grace. And we can name these things that we do to fall short because that's not who God made us to be. That's not who God has rebirthed us to be. So would you read this, this prayer of confession with me? It's going to be on the screen. We're going to read it out loud together. So we confess, our Father, that we do not live up to the family name. We are more ready to resent than to forgive, more ready to manipulate than to serve, more ready to fear than to love, more ready to indulge ourselves than to give to others. At the root of this behavior is mistrust. We do not love one another as we should because we do not believe that you love us as you do. Forgive us our cold unbelief and make more vivid to us the meaning and depth of your love at the cross. Show us what it cost you to give up your son so that we would become your sons and daughters. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our righteousness. Amen. So now we'll continue in prayer as we silently confess our sins before God. Now let us hear these words of assurance that come from 1 Peter, which I have no doubt that Peter wrote these, kind of reminiscing on maybe a late-night conversation he overheard with Jesus and Nicodemus. But hear these words of assurance from 1 Peter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great exhortation, and we have a priceless inheritance an inheritance that is kept for you in heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see.